You're listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Today's topic, a look at liberation theology. Let's get into the discussion. All right, episode five, man, episode five. We still trudging along here, brother. So Yes, sir. That's a good thing. Uh, got 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 some really good response from the last one. Some good feedback. <clears throat> uh, a lot of people said they were blessed by it and uh, challenged by it. Uh, some even said that they hadn't thought about things from the angle that we approached it um, before. So that was very encouraging to sure. hear. And I hope that as we continue doing these episodes that people will continue to be edified by um, what we do. Um, Absolutely. <clears throat> this is episode five, and we're going to take a look at liberation theology as it stands originally from Latin America. Um, and we'll deal with the history on a future episodes because the, the history goes really deep and it involves almost all of South America. So, we really would need time to <clears throat> do some research on those things. But what we can do is just do a primary look on deliberation theology that stems from uh, the things that were going on in South America. Because what we want to do is look at where Black liberation theology comes from first before we tie it into that. <clears throat> and it will help our listeners to have a better understanding of um, what what is actually what this liberation theology actually entails. All right. So again, this is Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute, and we're going to get into looking at liberation theology. First thing I want to look at here, um, and we're going straight from primary sources because we want to make sure that we represent the beliefs of those that we may have to deal with properly. We don't want to build straw man. We don't want to misrepresent. So we want to deal with primary sources. Um, and so we want to talk about here first, how liberation theology is done. Okay. And so they present, they present here that in the preliminary stage, you have to make a living commitment to liberation theology. And he says, before we can do theology, we have to do liberation. So basically, they put the cart before the horse. So in essence, it's action first, and then you make the theology after the action, right. which is completely backwards. Um, and they say that the first step for liberation theology is pre-theological. So before you uh, produce the doctrine, you do the actions first. Okay. And he said, it's just a matter of trying to live out the commitment of faith. Okay. And they said that if, if, if you don't do liberation theology first before you do the doctrine, then they feel like all it will be is just words. Okay. Which <clears throat> we say the same thing, but we say it in reverse. You know, right, right doctrine leads to right action. Well, in, in their case, they're saying that right action leads to right doctrine, which is 
totally not how the Bible presents it. Okay, so he says, <clears throat> he says, if we fail to do this, then poverty, oppression, revolution, and new society are simply words that can be found in a dictionary. So the end game of liberation theology basically is to eliminate poverty, to stop oppression. And then on top of that, it is to start a revolution for a new society. Okay. And that's <clears throat> what a lot of people, I think, don't understand about liberation theology is that when the, the end game is to create a new society from the old one. Okay. Um, and they say that the specific practice of liberation theology, that that's the root of it, is the practice of it. Okay. And they said here, uh, and let me go back, and th these are two people, they're called the Boff Brothers, B-O-F-F, -F, and they, they have this book called Introducing Liberation Theology. So I want to make sure I cite, cite the source that I'm reading from. Uh, so he says, in fact, it is only this effective connection with liberating practice that can give theologians a new spirit, a new style, or a new way of doing theology. So apparently, the old way doesn't work. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what it sounds like here. That, right. Because anytime you, you want to do a new thing, then basically that means that the old thing isn't working. He says, being a theologian is not a matter of skillfully using methods, but of being imbued with the theological spirit. Rather than introducing a new theological method, liberation theology is a new way of being a theologian. Okay, that goes along with feminist theology, right. womanist, womanist theology, black theology. Uh, any, any, just put any adjective in front of theology. Right. Right. And he says, theology is always, and this is, this is what blows my mind, theology is always the second step. <laughs> he says, the first is the faith that makes its power felt through love. And then he puts in quotes Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 doesn't fit the context of what he's saying. Mm. Right? So here, Let's look at chapter five, verse, read it in context, starting at verse one. It says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And here's where he gets the phrase from, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And then he goes, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. 
I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. <clears throat> so here you can see just from reading the context alone that his argument doesn't fit the context. What do you think about that, brother? I, yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, one of the issues is, you know, whenever someone is trying to make an argument to uphold a certain new school of theological thought, as they would say, you know, when they're twisting scripture, often you see it in where they make their distinctions versus where the text makes its distinctions. Because even in this passage, if you look at, if you look at verse five, as we have, you know, the, 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 the comparison is not between right theology and the necessity to do proper action as an outflow of that. The comparison is between works righteousness, laboring under the law, and the hope of righteousness, a righteousness outside of the believer that he doesn't have, and waiting for that uh, under salvation in Jesus Christ, that credited righteousness to the uh, once unbeliever, now believer's account, uh, based on what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So even in that distinction, if you're trying to build a theological you know, in this case, liberation theological system, um, it falls flat on the sense that the text it's using doesn't substantiate the claim that it's trying to make. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, here the issue is not Paul dealing with, uh, you know, uh, action versus simply theorizing, but it's works righteousness. It's a complete hijacking of the truth versus righteousness, true righteousness. Mm -hmm. So it's it's works righteousness versus false righteousness, uh, I'm sorry, versus uh, true righteousness. But one of the big issues too, brother, is that, you know, even in this case that they're, you know, what you've read is they're, you know, they're a form of works righteousness mm -hmm. because it's telling you certain things you have to do in order to present yourself as an adequate theologian to engage the topic when the very study of theology deals first with what God has accomplished and, and, and also along with that, who God is by his nature. You even see that in verse one. Um, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So it's talking about something that Christ did for man that man could not do for himself that sets him on the course toward a proper theology. So the first step is not what we do, but what Christ has accomplished for a man to be a theologian in the sense that he's studying God to truly understand who God is and to make him known amongst people uh, as he's revealed himself. Yeah. And, and like you said, this, when, when you hear this next section, you'll, you'll hear the works righteousness <laughs> that is contained within liberation theology. You can, you can tell it's obvious that it's works righteousness and it doesn't stem from what you said. It doesn't stem from the accomplishment of Christ. It doesn't, stem from that in the righteousness that has been imputed to us but rather it is a, a working out of righteousness in in the sense of works righteousness which we we know is unbiblical so right. he he goes on and he talks about uh three forms of commitment to the poor okay and he says 
the most appropriate and specific way for theologians to commit themselves to the poor and oppressed is to produce good theology. He says, but what we want to stress here is that this is impossible without at least some contact with the world of the oppressed. Okay, so let me stop here for a second and ask you a question. Um, is it necessary? They're arguing here that it's necessary for us to have experience with the world of the oppressed in order to produce a good theology for them. Well, I, I say I say I would have to disagree, and the reason is there was another individual in Scripture who made that very same case, although less than explicit, and that was Judas. Uh, Matthew twenty six eleven, at the very end of Jesus's ministry, um, Judas raised a very similar point, and the point that he raised was as it related to the lavish display um, that was. Uh, that was uh, directed toward Christ when the, when the vial of perfume uh, was, was, uh, was, uh, he was anointed with, and it was, uh, you know, he was, it was this display of worship and it was poured on his head. And it says, uh, you know, then that particular text says now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it upon his head. And as, as he reclined at the table, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? Hmm. This perfume. Now we know from the parallel gospels that Judas was the he was the leading voice. Right. You no, know, Judas the betrayer. Every everyone knows who Judas is. Mm -hmm. um, for this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. So if Jesus was for the establishment of a kind of theology that that first requires of us to live out our existence among the poor in order to gain some kind of credibility. Um, here you'll find that not only does he shatter that kind of thinking, you'll be very disappointed that that's not even what Jesus taught. Um, but Jesus aware of this. So it's not that this catches Jesus by surprise. And he goes, oh, I didn't know we had poor people in Israel. <laughs> he, he was aware of the fact. He was aware mm -hmm. of not only the cost of the, vial of, the, of the vial of alabaster, but he was also aware that there were several poor and oppressed people mm -hmm. economically. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. I'll tell you why that's important. And then he says in verse 11, for the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. And so the issue at hand is that worshiping Christ versus some existential experiential obligation, if the two are opposed to one another, then you always have to go with worshiping Christ. Mm -hmm. And so even in this situation, Jesus does not necessarily rebuke poverty in and of itself, as even in the wisdom of the Proverbs um, and in other passages in the Old Testament that deal with the fact that God made both the rich and the poor. Um, but in this case, his concern is not the eradication of poverty. And so, again, people will probably even listen to this and go, why are you guys bringing Jesus? And we didn't bring him in. The liberation the theology source brings him in, although mm -hmm. they misquote him and, and they try to establish a grounds for experiencing or advocating for the poor as the only means of doing right theology. But Jesus all but ignores it and says, no, that's not only why she didn't do what she did, but worshiping me is certainly greater 
uh, in its purpose um, because of the, in that context, the limited time that he was to be on the earth. I think the same urgency applies because what's before us in the future is the second coming. Mm. So I don't believe that the goal of the true biblical theologian is to seek ways to eradicate any kind of societal ailment, even, even poverty. You can't eradicate it. Right. As long as there's people who have greed in their hearts due to sin and due to the fall and other things, there you can't eradicate poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can do is you can repent, turn to Christ, and worship Christ. And that is a priority above any economical standing. And the reason is it brings in people from every economic standing mm-hmm. and, and into a kingdom that's eternal. Right. So... So you, you have that issue. So, I mean, I don't think that, you know, even in this case, and I say it with all humility, I, I, I don't think you want to establish your arguments from the standpoint of where Judas landed. Because mm-hmm. Judas, as concerned as he was for the poor, he was one who betrayed Christ. And he was one who, uh, as concerned as he was for the poor, it was a monetary exchange that he engaged in to do so. So he was very much in step with the financial standing of not only the temple, but he was also the treasurer uh, when it comes to the ministry of tri- of Christ himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I, you know, and that, that's just one part of it in a biblical argument, Chris, but I think the other side of it is theology is not done from below. It's not man trying to find his place, his standing, his reasoning, and somehow conforming God to that. Uh, true theology deals with who God is, what does he accomplish, what is his will, where can that be found, and thus, how do I proclaim that? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the experiential side of that often will find itself at odds with the world system uh, because that world system is governed by Satan. It's, he's the prince of the power of the air. And, and even though he doesn't do what he does outside of God's ultimate conquest over him. Uh, the goal is certainly not to reform society to the detriment of worshiping Christ. And, mm-hmm. and I believe that this argument so far that you're reading has made that, has made that kind of case. Yeah. Cause they, they go in, but uh, just something that you said, you know, and it reminded me of something that we talked about last, last time. And when we talked about, yeah, you can, you can make laws, and you can have reforms, but at the end of the day, all that the, the laws and the reforms do is actually stem the tide Absolutely. of human depravity. Absolutely. But eventually, as we see now, what's going on in, in the world now, human depravity will prevail. Right. right. I mean, so the laws and the reforms are, are, are good to try to stem the tide, but ultimately they are not the true solution as you said the solution is christ right the solution is the gospel being proclaimed and hearts being changed by the gospel and then being transformed by the power of the holy spirit through the word of god and that's the thing where's the true liberation if i need to experience that which you're trying to be liberated from in order to identify with you Mm. so how how can that one of us has to be free in order for me to lead you to freedom Oh, that's a good point. So how can I advocate for something <clears throat> and tell you I can't offer you the solution until I have condescended in such a way so as to put myself uh, in step with oppression 
that way we can be free. But this is why, and we'll get to it, this is why <laughs> the whole liberation theology movement, and I'm speaking of it in the Latin American context, it always ends up in revolution, a dictatorship, and a government that is certainly the richest uh, of that particular nation and the people who are the poorest among that nation. Because okay. it's kind of a bait and switch. Okay, now that you've experienced it, we're going to liberate ourselves at your expense. Yeah. And to me, that's not, you know, that, that, that even experientially doesn't have any real logical or common sense to it. Yeah. And then... Uh, we go on and he he goes on and he well before before we go on into the the, the levels um that he talks about here um what would you say to people who would uh argue that you can't speak about what i'm experiencing if you have it because basically that's what these guys are arguing that right. you can't really right. talk about helping the poor or the oppressed or the racially profiled or the systematic systemically oppressed unless you have experienced those categories kind of like you know you can't tell me not to smoke if you've never smoked or something to that effect you know what would you what would you say to those who would argue that you need to experience what p these people are going through in order to speak to the situation yeah i think there's a couple of ways to answer that's a great question i think one of the ways is you know that doesn't seem like that you're being offered a transcendent solution you know a solution that actually will have a long-lasting impact that's one because if it's a transcendent solution that i'm offering to you that means that in one sense i either a have never experienced it uh, therefore i'm not subject to the conditions that are oppressing you and therefore can speak to you very plainly about freedom uh, two if i have experienced it that doesn't necessarily give me any intrinsic credibility. Um, you know, I, I think I think that argument is largely based on uh, what's known today as multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. And multiculturalism, what it does is it proposes that all of the cultures have somewhat of a of of, of a I, I would say I would say objective truth, and they might not say it that way. They would use it probably in a more relative term but all cultures have an element and contingency of truth. Mm. So to me, it would be hypocritical to promote both. And that's what we're seeing in these modern liberation movements that somehow all the cultures have their struggles and all of them have their cornering on the truth based on intrinsic culture. But then they're also saying, but none of you really can solve it unless you've experienced what we've experienced. Mm. You know, I just think that's a defeatist claim and a defeatist argument. Uh, but also, I, I, think, I think the issue is when you, when, you make that kind of, uh, when you make that kind of argument, you really are limiting uh, the fact that financially, and, and it always goes back to money, right? Financially, it's not feasible for people to give you the cure. Because if they cure you, you no longer have the quote unquote disease and you're free, you, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, often it's more lucrative to keep people in certain conditions, whether it's slavery to ideologies, whether it's mood of the mob, whatever it may be, for whatever purpose and power and gain, 
it's often more lucrative to keep setting conditions before people that make them debate about them and fight about them. Again, no transcendent solution. Then you have professorships come out of this, political gain, mm -hmm. uh, world renown, um, government funding. All these things come from uh, being affixed to a certain less than transcendent solution where people are simply just debating issues and nobody's trying to cure uh, the things that actually ill society. So when you come to people and tell them that there is freedom and, and very plainly freedom in Christ Jesus. And, and when people, I mean, obviously people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will argue against that. But for the most part, people who are not in it because of absolute conviction and the overarching desire, painstaking desire to have solutions. Mm -hmm. If they're not in it for that, they, they just wanted that they would rather debate. Because the debate is what's entertaining. The debate is what gets you sponsorships. The debate is what gets you acclaim and prestige and, and, and even has, it fuels a sense of pride. Mm. Um, but the solution is right there. And that's why people want to, even when you talk about societal things that could help uh, people who do feel like that they maybe are not uh, connected to certain opportunities, the degree of that can be debated. You know, typically, the issue that people have there is that they want to silence the people who are trying to offer solutions because mm -hmm. they want, they want to keep the debate going. And, and so I think when people say that they're, they're trying to keep the issues in front of people because as long as there's not a cure, there is a profitable expense uh, of souls who will certainly line up themselves to whatever party, whatever purpose, mm -hmm. whatever cause would, uh, would exalt uh, would exalt others, and so mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's profitable to keep people's uh, issues in front of them. It's certainly not profitable to offer them the cure. We see that in the ministry of Paul the apostle. He shut down a couple of cities just by preaching Christ, and they had to smash their idols. Oh yeah, and yeah. He sent the cities in a rage. I mean that that to me that's the mindset that I'm getting when people are saying, um, unless you experience what I experience, you know you can't speak to these issues. But there's also people, again, they don't want solutions because a lot of the arguments I'm hearing, I have experienced those things, but mm -hmm. I'm also offering you a solution. And to me, it's the, you have to turn the question around, you know, brothers and sisters who are hearing that argument, you have to turn the question around and really ask them, do you really want a solution? Yeah. Because if you don't want a solution and you think it's simply just you and I relating, it's a very psychological thing. You and I are just relating to one another somehow brings a solution to the issues you're facing mm -hmm. well then there you can't gain any ground with individuals who begin that way yeah good points brother good points and so so he goes into and then i'm gonna skip a few things because there's something that i saw that i was just like what <laughs> so <laughs> he he talks about the levels of commitment to the poor he says the first level well, they say the first level might be called more or less restricted, either sporadic in the form of visits to base communities, meetings and the like, or more regular through pastoral work on weekends, acting as advisor to communities or popular movements and so forth. So the first level is basically just going to the communities and spending time in these impoverished communities. Uh, in whatever form that may be. And then the second level is alternating periods of scholarly work, research, teaching, and writing with periods of practical work, 
pastoral or theological work in a particular church. So I <laughs> see that smile, bro. <laughs> uh, in, in essence, he's saying, so basically after you do the first level where you, you go into the community and do the work, which goes back to the argument that they're making that you have to right. experience it first. Right. Then now that you're armed with that, you go to the library or you go to the scholarly journals or scripture or wherever you need to go and you do your research and you you teach about what 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 was experienced and then you write about it but then on top of that you do your pastoral work at the church to uh, in essence to try to help people to understand the plight of what you have experienced and then the third level is that of those who live permanently with the people making their home among the people living and working alongside the people so you know it kind of sounds like missionary work but at the same time it does like the modern missions like the right missions yeah yeah so i mean that's the three levels there you know and i, I saw you i saw that grin man what was that grin for <laughs> yeah you know because i think even whether it's unintentional i think they trivialize poverty because people meet with impoverished conditions for different reasons and people experience poverty uh to different degrees but poverty is not so much as always nor nor should it be a permanent condition now i know you know people may say well i can name a bunch of situations where it is it is the case yes i agree that there are some but I don't believe overall that poverty is something, which is why Jesus doesn't deal with it as a means of righteousness, mm-hmm. because you have rich and poor. You have, and you have some people who will be poor in this life, and yet, and then they'll meet with a certain amount of wealth, uh, or they'll meet with uh, their needs being met. And then I think you also have to understand the degrees of poverty, um, which is why you don't do your theology from experience, because when you talk about being impoverished in Western civilization, which is basically the area of the world right now that's in an uproar. Um, when you talk about in the Americas, the poverty in the Americas, when you compare it in relative scope to other nations in the world, it pales in comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think even, again, it trivializes poverty because that's not where you're supposed to start. And so, okay, you deal with, and then, and then, and then when you tie this to black liberation theology, are we then categorizing and triaging men and saying that poor white men are somehow lesser than poor black men? Mm. And from a practical standpoint, brother, the the reason I kind of grin too is that it sounds like a hustle. It sounds like the hustle of even the word faith movement, uh, some of these other situations where they will make their presence among the impoverished, but they themselves are certainly rich. Um, even many of the modern missions, uh, even in the in the state where I live, uh, and in many of the cities, they gain funding, a lot of funding, from perpetually, continually uh, making their presence known and felt among the, the poor. But they themselves are not living impoverished lives. They're just living among those who are impoverished. So it's it's, again, what you said in the beginning, you put the cart before the horse, and I think at some point in any form of liberation theology, you, whether, it's, whether it's black liberation theology or 
liberation theology of the uh, of, of South America, I think at some point you will almost always you will begin to spend and invest most of your time in maintaining the conditions that you're trying to fight or else you have no voice. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that's also the case when you're talking about poverty. And that's, that's kind of why I had the reaction I did because uh, to me, it's a hustle. I mean, it's, you know, if the goal is to now it would be even more ideological uh, but it would also be a hint of romanticism if they said, let's eliminate poverty. Mm-hmm. And yet, again, we know that that's not possible. But here it just sounds like to me, you know, um, let's let's manage poverty. Let's experiment with poverty. Let's reach the impoverished, assuming not only will it be there, but assuming there's something to gain from interfacing with it at the most intimate levels. That to me is called good old fashioned exploitation. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the funny thing about it is I've been looking through this, you know, and I haven't heard an inkling of gospel yet. Absolutely not. Because I haven't heard comes, anything about the gospel. That's a later step. <laughs> so, so now this isn't what I was talking about, but I, I saw something else that it's just, <laughs> so he says, obviously the prime object of theology is God. So it's almost like, okay, look, we know that God is the obvious, because theology means the study of God or discourse about God. Yeah, we, it's almost like they're saying, yeah, yeah, we know that. (laughs) But then look at at what he goes on to say next. He says, nevertheless, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Obviously, the prime object of theology is God. Nevertheless, before asking what oppression means in God's eyes, Theologians have to ask more basic questions about the nature of actual oppression and its causes. The fact is that understanding God is not a substitute for or alternative to knowledge of the real world. That, that, that sounds like a an epist- <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an epistemological issue. Absolutely. How do we know about. what we know? How do yeah. we know what we know? Right. So I mean, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's almost a slight, no, I'm not going to say almost, it is a slight yeah. to true theology because right. through true theology, when you understand God and his character, you understand his attributes and you understand his providential work in the earth, you, sh- you should be well fit to go out and deal with these issues by using a biblical worldview. So, so that you prevent the things that you said, like exploitation right. and, and running a hustle or trying to keep people in, in a certain spot so that you can continue to gain whatever it is you're trying to gain, whether it's acclaim or praise for and, your, for your and, work in those communities. Right. And, and the thing, too, that's a great point. That's a great point, brother. And, and the thing, too, is that what Paul taught concerning true godliness that godliness is with contentment is great gain. Mm-hmm. And so one's condition can be either impoverished or you can be wealthy. And yet both may cause peril to your soul. It's about, it's a one through despair and one through the pride of life, but it's about being content in what you have. And when we're talking about salvation, being content in salvation in Jesus Christ, knowing that eternity is settled and sealed, uh, to me, that's 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 the kind of riches 
that transcends everything that we're talking about. Uh, but also to your point, you know, one of one of the issues uh, when people who are trying to do either something new as it relates to a theological framework, or when they're trying to use a kind of double speak, you know, <clears throat> one of one of the issues. And, and it happens in modern religion today. I mean, as people are trying to even deal with all that's going on in the world today, uh, they're even kind of giving lip service to, yeah, 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 yeah. We know the scriptures, but we, we want to deal with these social issues. Yeah. It's just, it's um, just like that paragraph sounded. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the issue is, is theology never takes place outside of discerning what God's will is. Mm. So, you know, there are obviously people who may do so, and to their own destruction. That's the kind of knowledge that puffs up, where a person is just studying things, but they don't live it. They never make, you know, they never trace the implications. It's simply an exercise in pride. And that could happen in a true theological system, so to speak, with mm -hmm. doctrinal statements that would fit orthodoxy. And that can happen, certainly it does, it does happen in false doctrine. But I'll tell you, no theology takes place outside of interpreting God's will. And so interpreting God's will is what drives you to action and his will is in his word. So without that component, rightly dividing the word of truth, uh, then you'll be set off in a wrong course of action. Mm -hmm. Dismissing God as somehow just in one sense, you know, it's kind of what the framers wrote uh, in, in, a, in a certain uh, deistic approach uh, where they, where they believe that God was, was a, uh, you know, kind of the watch, uh, the, 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 he winds up the watch and then he goes about it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. It's the same kind of mentality. You know, it's the same mentality that, uh, that God is not necessarily governing the affairs now until we answer some questions. And, and that to me is not at all what the Bible teaches concerning theology. The reason that the Bible presents God as the creator and the creation is it's showing man how to exercise his dominion over the earth. It's not simply a history lesson. Mm -hmm. It's the reason that the ministry of Christ is put forward as it is in the gospels is not to teach you certain things about a nice man that you can emulate his characteristics. It's so that you will fall on your face and go before him and repent and trust in this Christ who has come as savior and will uh, one day come as judge. Mm -hmm. um, so all, all these things when you talk about theology, true theology, and I'm talking to the most conservative of brothers and sisters too, uh, that it should not just be an exercise of, well, I know this for myself, um, or I know this, look at me, I videotape myself evangelizing. It really should be, yes, it drives me to action because of the implications of the argument. And right. liberation theology, they do have one thing correct, as liberalism did that you have people who this is all just head knowledge and, mm -hmm. and, and conferences and right, right. we'll all discuss these issues because it's the popular thing to do is to discuss the black lives matter movement now. And whereas a week ago when there were riots and other things, it was a little, it was a little quieter. Yeah, but but now it's, now it's like, this is something we all want to address. Mm -hmm. And to me that is theologizing. Yeah. But the issue now becomes that, the pendulum is swinging, right? And it swung, it swung over into the head knowledge side, but yes. then liberation theology pushes it back. But instead of trying to find the middle spot where it belongs, where there's balance between theology and action, they right. push it all the way over to the other side where now it's just all action. 
and, and, and a little bit of theology, maybe. You know. Absolutely. And that, so to me, you know, in an extension of answering what you said, brother, the way I would tell folks is um, you can't convince people that you're credible because of what you've experienced or haven't experienced. I believe the appeal has to always be to objective truth, no matter what's happening. And and you will reach who you will. I mean, I think even in what we're doing, you know, I don't have an imaginary number of people who I think are actually hearing what we say, but I know the goal is to reach those whose hearts have been softened by the truth, who are, I would pray, born again, those who may not be, but uh, are reaching a place where they are beginning to ask questions because of a certain conviction uh, mm-hmm. about things that I would hope lead to salvation. But I would say it's very difficult to reason with people who will not uh, speak with you unless you've experienced what they have. To me, because they're beginning from a very illogical um, standpoint, what would be known as a logical fallacy, and, and several of them, um, mm-hmm. that they, they, they really are not interested in the solution. And it's, it's brother, it's very difficult to deal with people when they're not interested in solutions. And so I would tell my brothers and sisters who are finding that, that, you know, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I mean, you have to discern when it's time to know that you're either, you know, uh, as, 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 uh, as the Bible prevents from arguing with a fool, lest you be like, oh, him. yeah. But then it also tells you to argue with them. Right, Proverbs 26. <laughs> right, you have to know the wisdom yeah. between the two. It sounds like they're saying the same thing, but they're both standing at opposite ends. Yeah, you, you have to know when. And that's why I always I teach my son the same thing. Because like, yeah. basically, basically all that passage is saying is pick your battle. Right. You know, right. Right. You, you don't want to end up fighting somebody and now you look just like a fool or more of a fool than that person does. You know, sometimes Absolutely. you just need to like let it be. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's not always um, uh, important for you to die on a hill. <laughs> right, right. But we got all these bleeding hearts out here today, and they just want to die on every single hill. Right. Every rock that they've turned over. I, I keep saying turning over every rock, but that's just what's happening. It's like, absolutely. Oh, let me turn over this rock. Oh, there's some police brutality. Let me die on that hill. Let me turn over this rock. Oh, there's right. some more police brutality. See, see what I'm talking about. But then you don't, but then you turn over the rock and you see the, the good, the good cop that's actually saving a life or actually preventing life from being taken. And you just turn that rock back over because it doesn't fit your narrative. It I mean, doesn't it doesn't. Fit. and that's what we said. One, one goal of liberation theology is not to eradicate, and I'm talking functionally, and I'm talking historically, it's never been to eliminate oppression. It's been to invest all of the power in the people who brought about the revolution so as to limit uh, the oppression among the common people. Mm. So the government becomes the chief purveyor of oppression historically. And they wouldn't probably write that, but I'm talking about as you trace the history of liberation theology uh, in the arenas that we're looking at today. So now this is the one that was finally getting to this one particular section. It's, it's called the poor as the disfigured son of God. And you know what that reminded me of? It reminded me of James Cone and yeah. the, the image of the lynching tree. So. Absolutely. I, I looked at this and I was like, oh man, I'm, I, I said, I don't think Duran is going to really dig into this one because, <laughs> so <laughs> let me just read it and then you can 
you can respond however uh, you, you want to. Um, it says, finally, the Christian view of the poor is that they are all this and more. Faith shows us the poor and all the oppressed in the light that liberation theology seeks to project. Firstly, they project the poor in the light of the disfigured image of God. So I'm assuming they're, they're talking about uh, Isaiah 52, 53, where it talked about he couldn't recognize, couldn't recognize Christ. Yeah. Um, so, so they're projecting, liberation theology projects the poor through, firstly, the disfigured image of God. Secondly, through the son of God who was made the suffering servant and rejected. Oh, you know what? Let me go back to the disfigured image of God. They're talking about the, the, the Imago Dei being marred. Okay. And then the second one would be talking about Isaiah 52, 53. Okay. Suffering servant. And how he was rejected by his own people. And then thirdly, the memorial of the poor and persecuted Nazarene. And then fourthly, the sacrament of the Lord and judge of history. He says, without losing any of its specific substance, the conception of the poor is thus infinitely enlarged through being opened up to the infinite, capital I, infinite. In other, in other words, being opened up to God himself, basically. Sure. He says, in this way, seen from the standpoint of faith and the mission of the church, the poor are not merely human beings with needs. They are not just person, persons who are socially oppressed and at the same time agents of history. They are all these and more. They are also bearers of an evangelizing potential and they are beings called to eternal life. So, wow. yeah. So he, he goes on there and he goes on and he tries to take it uh, to the Bible now. Mm -hmm. right. So he goes on and he says, uh, once a theologian has understood the real situation of the oppressed, theologians have to ask, what has the word of God to say about this? So it's not the word of God, again, the cart before the horse. It's not what right. does the word of God have to say with this and then I deal with the, the situation. It's right. no, I need to go out, deal with the situation first. And then, uh, then I go to the word and then I see what the word says. Right. Which becomes evident later on because I, 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 I read some more of this and later on they talk about certain books of the Bible that liberation the theologians should read, such as Exodus. <laughs> wow. Because, you know, Exodus has to do with Israel being enslaved. Right. And then they are liberated by God. But the problem with that is that they filter it through this liberation theology hermeneutic. Sure. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's a hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he says, it is therefore a question at this point of seeing the oppression liberation process in the light of faith. What does this mean? The expression does not denote something vague or general. It is something that has a positive meaning in scripture, where we find that in the light of faith and in the light of the word of God have the same meaning. The liberation theologian goes to the scriptures bearing the whole weight of the problems, sorrows, and hopes of the poor, seeking light and inspiration from the divine word. This is a new way of reading the Bible. Yes. 
the hermeneutics of liberation. So what they're actually saying here, and this is how they could uh, use this section to say that the poor are like the disfigured son of God. Right. Because their hermeneutic is not a, a proper hermeneutic. It's a hermeneutic that is based on experience. Right. It's a hermeneutics based on what they call liberation or right. uh, the, or as he says, the whole weight of the problems, sorrows, and hopes of the poor. So when they go to the scriptures, what they're actually looking for are things that will resonate with being oppressed right. or things that resonate with being poor or impoverished or, or uh, uh, racially profiled or uh, police brutality, anything. And, so and I, here, you, know, you know, here's the thing. What I love is, though, the simplicity of God's word and, mm-hmm. and even its perfect wisdom in that the liberation theologian of any persuasion and the liber the, you know, the person who would ascribe the certain liberation theology in their politics, you know, they do so in this great complexity that again, does not seek to solve the issue. You know, if you look at a text such as Proverbs six, mm-hmm. you know, Proverbs six, six to 11, And when you look at a text like that, you don't need a bunch of mediators between you and whoever your perceived oppressors are in order to liberate you. Because in the wisdom of the Proverbs, it is very plain that you can look at the creation around you. You can look at creatures and be able to find your way in terms of no longer being impoverished. You can study creation itself and understand how do I then, not necessarily amassing the world's wealth, but how do I then come to a place of economic standing where I can have my needs provided for? Mm-hmm. And you see in that particular text I'm mentioning that it says, go to the ant, you sluggard. So it deals with a certain form of poverty that has a lot to do with being a sluggard, someone who's being lazy. And You might have people who say, how dare you say that everybody who is impoverished is lazy? No, I'm not saying that, but to remain impoverished has a lot to do with laziness. And that's why the text is where it is. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep and a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty? will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Again, the Bible itself presents wisdom, divine wisdom and solutions for a person standing in the, in the society in which they live. The first prerequisite is to be born again, however. Mm-hmm. And to be born again introduces not riches and wealth of the word of faith, prosperity, gospel, um, name it, claim it stuff, but it does introduce a certain way of being content and laboring well with your hands in order to provide as God meets your needs. Um, that, that does not call for a theological, a new theological system. It doesn't call for an overthrow of revolution. Literally a person, this is a literal text. A person can look at what ants do and there's plenty of ants. And I think every place covered in this on the face of earth has ants. You can watch God's, creatures, ants, and learn something of how might I then conduct myself in the same way 
with the same diligence, with the same forethought and planning as those who are not created in God's image. In Matter of fact, I, I have I have an anthill right next to where I park my, my Jeep. See? And every time I get out of my car, I get out and I bend down and I look and see what they're doing. Absolutely. I, I think it's amazing because sometimes the rain or somebody, you know, walking over their their hill and they disrupt it and they mess it up. And then I can go to work, come back next then come back later on after work is over and I park and I look and they've almost got it back to, to normal again. And they They're got their, always working and they right? work to the advantage of one another. Mm -hmm. And so, so the liberation is not in some idealized government template and it's not in some certain political ideology. And it's certainly not in those false religions that, have exploited the name of Christ in order to have some kind of monetary gain. It is in itself being able to labor diligently and well, even the wisdom of the Ecclesiastes. So, so the point is, it assumes that poverty is a result of certain things in some places in the Bible and in other places in scripture, people are impoverished for other reasons, but never does it make them lesser in terms of being created in God's image uh, as individuals because of their poverty. And it certainly does not uh, create a scenario where they should be exploited in their poverty because that's what the Pharisees were doing and with the widow uh, in the gospels, uh, that they were exploiting widows and others in their poverty. And, and so, you know, I, I really, to me, it really seems when you're arguing for a certain liberation theology, it's easier to continue the issues that need to be addressed than it is to solve the issues because liberation theology as a whole does not have ready solutions. They have grievances, but they don't have solutions for those grievances. And so when you don't have solutions, you, the, the grievances become existentially gratifying. They become uh, a means of identification for the group and people will pay handsomely to hear all kinds of things in terms of how they can better their lot in this life. Mm -hmm. But once you start giving people solutions, you can work yourself out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible assumes that the created order can show you, uh, can show you certain things if you're paying attention to them. Right. Right. Yeah. That's really good points, man. And it just, it goes to show how liberation theology falls flat on its face if, when you hold it up to the light of God's word. And even more indicting is what they say are the marks of a theological liberative hermeneutic. Okay, you ready for this? Yep. <laughs> There's the rereading of the Bible done from the basis of the poor and their liberation project has certain characteristic marks. Firstly, it is a hermeneutics that favors application rather than explanation. Wow. <laughs> In this, the theology of liberation takes up the kind of probing that has been the perennial pursuit of all true biblical reading, as can be seen, for example, in the Church Fathers, a pursuit that was neglected for a long time in favor of a rationalistic exegesis concerned with dragging out the meaning in itself. Okay, secondly, 
He says, liberative hermeneutics reads the Bible as a book of life, as if somehow those who actually wow. read it correctly don't read it that way. But right. he says they read it as a book of life and not as a book of strange stories. It's almost like they're trying to elevate themselves. I'm going to keep reading this, but it just yeah. I have to stop because it just sounds like they're they're trying to elevate this hermeneutic over a proper hermeneutic. Right. Over right over rightly dividing the word of God. Now they do make a valid point that you don't want to just bring all the pots and pans to the to the to the table. You right. know? It's not it's not ra- it's not rationalism. Right. You don't you don't want to just like when you preach a text or when you teach a text, you don't want to just talk about the Greek and the Hebrew and the background and then don't give anybody any kind of real meaning to take away from it. I I I, I do agree with that point. However, when you prop application up over the hard of mining a text, yeah, I mean, all you well, well, is- well, because the goal of any, okay, if they call it a book of life, right? The mm-hmm. goal of any, and and, uh, and brother Eric talked about it when we were dealing with the Constitution of Man. The goal of any living document, if that's what people are calling things, mm-hmm. it's to find out what what is the author's meaning. You know, so. I use the example, and I know you want to keep going, so I'm I'm, I'm gonna be short with this. But, <laughs> but I I use the example: if I write you a letter ten years ago and say, "Go to the corner store in your local town. I need a glass of milk, or I need you to buy me a gallon of milk," and I give you a grocery list, and if you go there today, ten years later, and you do that, you go buy those things. So many variables have shifted, mm-hmm. but because you took an action and you failed to discern, okay, what did he mean? What was the time frame and context with which he wrote this letter? People do it with all kinds of things, but when it comes to something like the Bible, they claim that, you know, to do so is somehow going to lead away from proper application. Mm-hmm. Or they say that it's archaic. Right. Exactly. Or, or it has no meaning for today. It doesn't have any impact today. But if we're talking about God right. and the liberation theology movement is willing to concede at least that God exists mm-hmm. and whether they deal with his eternality and all that. I mean, it, you probably can find different variables there, but to assume he exists is to assume that if the book is living and the person who wrote it is living, then you have to find out what it is that he meant by what he wrote. Right. And, you know, in simple terms to not do so is to really rob people of being able to apply it in the way it was intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and he, he, it goes on here um, again, like placing the importance where it doesn't belong. Cause he says the textual meaning is indeed sought, but only, only as a function of the practical meaning. So they, they, they use the, the textual meaning as a springboard to, to get to what they think is the actual I mean, if you don't study the text properly and you don't find out the authorial intent, your applications could be all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't uh, make, you have to build the bridge from, from then to now. Right. And, and that bridge begins with what was Paul trying to say? What was Jesus saying? What was Isaiah saying? Right. At that time. And, and you leave people, one thing that we have seen over the last maybe two or three weeks, you leave people in a place where 
the height to where they can go is in their emotions mm. and in their frustrations. That that's that's the best they can do because the thing that they the only thing they have to appeal to is their own experiences. Mm-hmm. And so even in that you have people and then and then obviously within that you have fear of man and mood of the mob and you know, okay, you know, I, I see things from um from from folks who are connected to the professional leagues, you know, and they're saying how they thought they knew more about the black man struggle. And then somehow, you know, now they have to learn uh, how to relate and all these other things. But, but what I'm saying is even in, in that system, in liberation theology, you're not really clear who the oppressors are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in black liberation theology, they try to make it plain, but there's just, you live in the world of gray areas and emotional uh, investment. And so the product of that is revolution, overthrow, mm-hmm. you know, acts of frustration, speech that necessarily doesn't relate in the kind of reforms that you're looking for because you can't approach those things in a way that brings about the desired result. Um, it, it really is a very hopeless and cruel system uh, when you look at its fruit, its mm-hmm. product. What is it? I mean, if you're telling me the height of it is to establish awareness, then how is awareness in a, a remedy? If you're talking about renaming some streets as a means to alleviate the issue, to me, that's recognition. Creating recognition for a movement or a person is not giving them a solution. It's not liberating them from any kind of oppression. And yeah. I think you also, in order to keep this going, you talk about brother turning over every rock. You have to find enemies who aren't there too. Um, for liberation theology to be successful, um, in some cases, you have to pander to a certain mindset that wants to believe everything and everyone is at enmity against you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have to be liberated. Um, that's the end goal of this liberation theology um, as it took place, I believe, in, Latin, in the Latin American portion of the world yeah so um finally what uh in their their hermeneutic they say that liberative hermeneutic seeks to discover and activate the transforming energy of biblical text like i thought the holy spirit led us into all truth but you know it it sounds like really philosophical you know when, when you think about it uh to discover and activate the transforming energy. The Bible itself, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, the, the Bible's already living and active. You don't need to activate anything. Right. God said himself that when he sends out his word, it will do what he accomplished it to do, what he sent it out to do. It will accomplish that very thing. It holds inherent power. Right. And it will not return to him void. So I, what they're getting at here, uh, I don't know. But he says, in the end, this is a question of Okay, I see what they're saying now. In the end, this is a question of finding an interpretation. Finding an interpretation, which goes against everything that we just said. Right. Finding an interpretation that will lead to individual change, what they call conversion. And a part of the issue when you're dealing with opposing views is uh, what I call redefinition. Absolutely. They use our terms. They use Christian terms, but they mean something totally different. Which, right? which shows you how valid 
that which they're borrowing from really is. Right. You can't, you can't formulate an ideology without stealing from biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so he says that, that it'll lead to individual change, which is conversion, and change in history, which is what you've been talking about, revolution. Right. Right. He says, this is not a reading from ideological preconceptions. Biblical religion is an open and dynamic religion. Thanks to its messianic and eschatological character. And he says, finally, without being reductionist, which it's too late for that. (laughs) uh, This theological political rereading of the Bible stresses the social context of the message. So instead of looking at the author's intent, what they're actually trying to do is find the social meaning. And, ap- and their, their, their application becomes the sole interpretation. Right, right. So they go on a little further and they talk about what I was talking about earlier, the biblical books that they favor. Yeah. Biblical books that are favored by liberation theology and uh, we'll go through this section and then we can close it out. Um, so firstly, their first favorite book is Exodus because it recounts the epic of the political religious liberation of a mass of slaves who through the power of the covenant with God became the people of God. Okay. Next, the prophets for their uncompromising defense of the liberator God <laughs> See, I'd have to put that adjective in there. Right? Their vigorous denunciation of injustices, injustices, which they did, their revindication of the rights of the poor, and their proclamation of the messianic world. You know, they must have missed the part where God was inflicting distress on Israel <laughs> because he actually, he literally went to war with the people who were in, in, in distress them and we don't make apology for that because he did right. to his redemptive purposes but he literally visited even the people of israel which is why the prophets lament and preach as they do he visited them with the affliction of disobedience and 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 of oppression when they veered away from him to idols like mm-hmm. the goal was even to use affliction and oppression if it meant that they would be drawn closer to him yeah yeah I mean, when you when when you, when when you when you go through it, it's yeah. obvious if if you're an if you're a student, a disciple of the Word of God, it's obvious they're leaving stuff out when they explain why they like these particular books. Oh, the co- the covenants, out. the holistic meaning of Scripture as you relate the Old Testament mm-hmm. and the New. I mean, there's just and and I I you know I. I don't I don't agree with it. I do think it's it's diabolical, but I can see why people are captivated by it. Yeah. Because yeah. and and this is why I appreciate you using a first-hand source, a primary source, because it shows you that these movements as much as people want to turn and look at us, even the modern evangelical who fancies himself either woke or fancies himself trying to connect himself to that movement or the person who's berating that movement from a standpoint of not understanding that there's actually arguments made. But the issue that people are, are being faced with, brother, is that this is a very 
albeit wrong, it's a very coherent defense, mm-hmm. which is why you have to smash fortresses and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that the case they're making is a case that is being made in the minds of people. And these are, you're talking about the, gen, this is generations of political so-called pseudo-theological ideology mm-hmm. that has run its course through many of the nations that we're referring to with this thought. And yeah. so uh, when you look at what's happening in our world today, you know, you understand that they may, may not even be aware that this is what they're tied to. And some are, but they're going to places like, how do you interpret the Bible? What's the meaning of the atonement? Mm-hmm. So the Christians had better stop playing around, triaging stuff, simply dividing and splicing stuff in conference seminars and doing all these other, you know, pop culture tactics to try to gain followers and really sit down in front of God's word and be able to make a true defense while also winning people to the truth. Yeah. Because your opponents, they're studying hermeneutics. Oh, yeah. They're studying, you know, the atonement. They're studying the exodus and the prophets and 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 all the they're studying infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. <laughs> and we're scaring people off those things. They're studying eschatology. Right. And we're scaring people off those things, not we, you and I, but the so-called uh, religious establishment mm-hmm. with which we find ourselves surrounded by. Um, you know, I'd say that this should be a wake-up call and encouragement to you brothers and sisters who may be listening, that this stuff is serious. I mean, it it's it's come to a place, even what you know, our brother has read today that liberation theology from which black liberation theology finds its identity. Uh, liberation theology is very articulate when it comes to wanting to reframe things in a new theological construct. Mm-hmm. And we have some Christians who will not sit down in front of God's word and try to discern the author, the divine author's meaning. Right. To me, that, that's the scary part. It's not all the burning buildings. That grieves me. You know, it's not all the people trying to exercise blame shifting and mood of the mob and all these other things. What to me can become discouraging is you have people who are being scared off and distracted from sitting in front of God's word and having the doctrinal fidelity and humility to actually deal with the doctrines of the faith. That's why when we started these podcasts, we started with the doctrinal triage. We started with doctrines that people would scoff at constitution of man. We start with these things because that's where your opponents are going. And they're assuming that the world itself has been perverted in its mindset in the university in order to be able to wrestle against you uh, because this is a spiritual war. So, you know, I, I really think, you know, today's modern context has to come to terms with there is a theological backing, although it's false to how this movement functions. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, you know, BLM, Black Lives Matters and other movements, when you look at what they're doing, you can't fixate on necessarily what they're doing. You have to tie them and the people who are deceived by what they're doing to where their beliefs start. And, and, And a lot of this you'll find it starts with a theological construct that is not true theology. Yeah, and we're just scratching the surface here. I, we haven't even gotten into the actual themes of liberation theology. This is just their preliminary ideas of how they it's come. How they hook you. Yeah, it's how they come to their understanding of what what their interpretation of the Bible means. 
Absolutely. And, and, and when we look at when we look at Cone, brother, you know, James Cone, you'll see he, he starts with the atonement. Mm-hmm. He starts with the atonement. He he's making a case from what Christ has accomplished. He's just redefining for whom that accomplishment was made. And so to me, you know, I, I believe that now comes a time for if the church is who she says she is, she has to stop uh, implicitly and explicitly mocking people who are actually concerned with sound doctrine. Yeah. Because these movements are beginning from perverting sound doctrine and making it false doctrine. And so I just, there's quotes all day. I mean, I think Paul Washer, he does a quote about schools. It might be Vody Bachman, one of them. They do a quote about schools. And if you send your kids, you know, to, to public school and, 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 and then, you know, they sit in a, uh, you know, they sit in a class, a Sunday school class drinking Kool-Aid, they're not going to be, you know, equipped. I would say the same thing about modern evangelicalism. If you keep putting people in a place where they're given to hero worship, secondhand convictions, being able to quote their favorite speakers, but not understanding how doctrinal things tie together, and then the things in the world happen as they do, and they're not prepared to argue. Mm-hmm. They're not prepared to make a defense for the hope that lies within them. I don't blame the church for what's going on in the world. I begin to blame the so-called church when people are not ready as Christians to address the things of the world. And they begin to identify with the world because the world seems to have at least a conviction and compelling argumentation to begin to philosophize about these things. It's more attractive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead, brother. You were saying as you were. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just, just a couple more uh, of the, the, sections of scripture that they uh, enjoy to use. Uh, The Gospels, obviously for the centrality of the divine person of Jesus, with his announcement of the kingdom, his liberating actions, there's that word again. You know, they have to, like you said, repetition is key. So they, they have to use that word constantly, liberate, liberate, oppressed, oppressed, liberate, liberate. And you see that his liberating actions and his death and resurrection, the final meaning of history, Uh, the acts of the apostles, because they portray the ideal of a free and liberating Christian community. Okay. And I'm sure they probably derived that from Acts chapter two, where it says that the people shared all, you know, everything that they had. And they they try to make it like communal. Right. Right. Almost socialist, socialist in a sense. And then finally, revelation, because in collective and symbolic terms, and this was the one that threw me off, because in collective and symbolic terms, it describes the immense struggles of the people of God against all the monsters of history. So it sounds to me like they probably take like a historicist view to revelation. Yep. um, Because that's the only way, what the statement they just made, that's the only way that's going to work. Yeah, you can't take it as future and it's <laughs> right but yeah man i mean if, if, if i mean on their side they can't take it that way because of where that would lead in terms of where they stand right um, right yeah i mean again like you said just scratching the surface but you know all in all i think to really begin to deconstruct what a movement believes you have to know to some degree what they believe mm-hmm. i don't believe in the argument that i have to join a false movement to be able to articulate as to why it's false. But I think you have to be acquainted with what is central to them, what's core to them. 
what they hope for, what they believe, who they believe God is or isn't. Um, I think at, at, at those points, you know, I, I do believe that there can be a certain encouragement for people to understand that even in the context as we trace liberation theology up to the modern time, um, you know, because it's easy to do this all with catchphrases. Mm-hmm. And, and, but but I, I believe that you have to dig very deep to help, uh, you know, to help individuals understand why what they're seeing is taking place as it is. Right. Um, and, and quite frankly, uh, to understand why it's not novel. Um, you know, the things that are taking place with either the white supremacy movements uh, over the ages, um, or in this case, black liberation theology, both of them have the common interests of exalting things in the central area of particulars against the whole. Right. And, and, and to do so, you end up, you know, you end up where you, where you do, um, you know, so for people, you know, the good argument, Chris, is for people who say, I will not listen to, from a standpoint of, of black liberation theology, I will not listen to Christianity because of how it's been exploited by whites. But mm-hmm. I'm going, as you categorize them, as you say that, they're not the only ones, at least as we're looking at this, <laughs> that have exploited the word of God. That's correct. So, if 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 your standard for departing a movement is based on them even in the most infant infantismal way of exploiting the word of god or departing from it i would say you have to also look to your own movement and if they're guilty of that with the same energy that you're willing to tear down uh white supremacy rightfully so uh, as it's known mm-hmm. you have to walk away from any supremacist movement that does the same thing because right. this is no this is no different, you know. To even even to put yourself where you're redefining oppression, in terms of a certain temporal offense that's committed away from uh, the transgressions that every man has committed against God. When you do that, um, you know you are perverting the text, and you know the Bible does not uphold a certain pragmatism that allows you to do that only because you represent um, a so-called minority faction. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was our final word. <laughs> Praise God. Nah, you, you good. You, you good at doing them conclusions, man. So, uh, but yeah, we hope that you guys uh, will continue to to hang with us. We we have a lot to work through. We have a lot to work through. Um, uh, this was just, as Duran said, this is just scratching the surface. Uh, we still have to get into the history of liberation theology, like where it actually comes from. And when you see it, then you'll, you'll really understand why they use the concepts that you heard today and why they use the hermeneutic that they use. Um, uh, but it's important that we deal with the history as well. And then once we deal with the history, then we'll get into the key themes, the key themes of liberation theology. And uh, <clears throat> because this, this, Liberation theology is actually the foundation by which uh, Black liber- liberation theology is formed, and so we we want to start from the ground zero. We want to start from ground zero and then work our way to uh, Black liberation theology and talk about uh, how detrimental that is to uh, the church and 
in some ways to society itself. And so we just ask that you just continue to support us, continue to bear with us, continue to listen to the podcast. Um, eventually, uh, I will set up uh, an email address. So if you want to uh, leave some comments or some questions or some feedback, then you can do it that way. Uh, I plan to have that done by uh, next week sometime. So thank you all for listening. This is Train of Thought a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. We'll see you next week. This has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, Email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.